Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 21, Genesis chapters 20 and 21. We're going to get back into Genesis 20. And when we last met, we found that the greatest patriarch, Abraham, um, had moved from Hebron down into the reaches of the Upper Sinai. Got a map up there for you to take a little look at. Um, and this is the area I'm talking about here, kind of between Kadesh and Gerar. And though the scriptures don't really say so, the reason for his move from up in, up in the uh, Jerusalem area down to Gerar and then down to Kadesh uh, was an obvious one, which we wouldn't question if we were shepherds of flocks. Right? New grazing land and probably new water sources was needed. And for millennia, I suppose, Kadesh has been a tremendous and steady source of water and pasture land. Um, yet we can also know that um, it was by the guidance of God's own hand that Abraham decided to make such a move in the first place. Well, he moves to an area that amazingly has been at the forefront of the evening news now for years and doubly so in the last few weeks, the Gaza Strip. Okay. The city of Gerar is on the eastern edge of the Gaza Strip. And it was ruled by one king of Bimelech. And this king was almost certainly an early Philistine settler. And the Gaza Strip makes up the bulk of what was... Um, in biblical days, Philistia, the nation of the Philistines. Now, the Philistines are probably Israel's most consistent and noteworthy enemies in all of Bible history. And it is amazing to see that the first encounter with a Philistine in the Bible, though peaceful, occurred nearly 4,000 years ago. And that Israel's arch enemy today is again the Philistines. Okay, how so? Because these people that we see attacking Israel at every opportunity, seeking to ultimately destroy her, we call Palestinians. And Palestinian is but the Greek word for Philistine. So well, let's reread chapter 20 as we didn't get very far into it last time. And it's a rather short chapter. So pull out your Bibles and let's look at Genesis chapter 20. Abraham traveled from there toward the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. Now while living as an alien in Gerar, Abraham was saying of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. So Avimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Avimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You're about to die because of the woman you've taken, since she's someone's wife. 
Now Abimelech had not come near her, so he said, Lord, will you kill even an upright nation? Right? Didn't he himself say to me, she's my sister? And even she herself said, he's my brother? In doing this, my heart has been pure and my hands innocent. And God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that in doing this, your heart has been pure. And I too have kept you from sinning against me. This is why I didn't let you touch her. Therefore, return the man's wife to him now. He's a prophet, and he will pray for you so that you will live. But if you don't return her, know that you will certainly die, you and all who belong to you. Avimelech got up early in the morning, called all his servants, and told them these things. And the men became very afraid. Then Avimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? How have I sinned against you to cause you to bring on me and my kingdom a great sin? You've done things to me that just aren't done. And Avimelech went on asking Abraham, whatever could have caused you to do such a thing? And Abraham replied, well, it's because I thought there could not possibly be any fear of God in this place, so they'll kill me in order to get my wife. But she actually is also my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And so she became my wife. When God had me leave my father's house, I told her, do me this favor, wherever we go, say about me, he's my brother. Avimelech took sheep, cattle, and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham, and he returned to him Sarah, his wife. Then Avimelech said, look, my country lies before you. Live where you like. And to Sarah, he said, here, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver that will allay the suspicions of everyone who is with you before everyone you are cleared. Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and his wife and slave girls so that they could have children. For Adonai had made every woman in Abimelech's household infertile on account of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So, we instantly find out that Abraham is up to his old tricks again. Now that he's in a place that he has some trepidation about, he's once again referring to his wife, Sarah, as his sister. And as far as Abraham's concerned, why not? I mean, in Egypt, he came out smelling like a rose. All right, when, he, when Pharaoh took Sarah and then gave her back along with a king's ransom just to stop the plagues, that God had visited, visited upon the Pharaoh. Well, now he encounters a king called Abimelech. All right? And essentially, this Egypt affair happens all over again. Now, for the record, Abimelech is a fairly common name for that era. And it's a kind of a combination title and name. And it means, my father is king. Ababa, father. Melech, king. Okay. And just for the record, we'll find another Abimelech in the Bible. All right. During the time of the Israelites in Canaan, a few hundred years, years into the future. So don't get confused by it. All right. It's not that much different than running into a couple of different John Joneses over a long period of time. I mean, that's not going to confuse us, right? Well, anyway, it's deja vu all over again. All right. Abimelech takes Sarah. Now, Sarah was 90 years old at this time. 
what in the world was this king thinking? I mean, the rabbis deduced that she must have retained all that beauty that attracted the pharaoh many years earlier, and I suppose that's possible. But more than likely, it was that the king was trying to make an alliance with Abraham um, in order that they would they would be um, a peaceful. Right? Abraham was a pretty big tribe by this time. Probably looked pretty menacing. Right? And it was the custom in that era to marry a family member of a hoped-for ally. We're going to find Solomon doing that a lot a little bit further into the future. Now, it's obvious from the story that there was mutual respect and peaceful intentions, not kidnapping all right, that was going on here. There is no indication of force. Well, we now get this interesting little dialogue between Abimelech and God. And, and God comes right to the point. Abimelech, I'm going to kill you. Now that would get my attention. Okay? Because you have taken a married woman. Now Abimelech, of course, argues in his own defense that he's not had any sexual relations with her. And besides, he didn't even know she was a married woman. God acknowledges that Abimelech was telling the truth, but then goes on to say that it was divine power that kept Abimelech from touching Sarah, because boy, he planned on it, apparently. Because if he had, then no excuse would have sufficed. Death would have been the penalty. So God orders Abimelech to give Sarah back, and that Abraham would intercede for him. And if he did that, he'd live. If he didn't, that would be the end of Abimelech's line. Now, did Abimelech have any idea who he was talking to? Now, first of all, this was a dream. A dream was a standard way of communicating with God in that era. Okay? And in fact, we're told that in the last days, it's going to once again become a tool for men to interface with God. Now, perhaps we shouldn't so easily slide by this common communication channel between man and God of a dream. All right? I mean, it's interesting, is it not, that Abimelech was a pagan, and yet God communicated with him. I mean, this isn't the last time we're going to see this happening. I mean, often it's implied in Christian books and sometimes in sermons, if not outright stated, that the Lord God Almighty only communicates with his people. Well, the Bible simply doesn't support that teaching. Okay. God is sovereign and he's all-powerful, and while God doesn't often move a man against his own will, he will do so if it serves his purposes. Yahweh has absolute control over all things. Humans included. It doesn't matter whether that human is a believer, an adherent of a false or a non-god, or even an atheist. Okay? Now, what is also interesting is how readily Abimelech accepted the instruction of a god he didn't know. I mean, perhaps if there is anything more personally disastrous 
than a person who places their faith in a false god, a non-god. It's one who acknowledges no god whatsoever. I mean, Abimelech, though he was a pagan, had no problem dealing with the spiritual world, nor with a power higher than himself. A person who is convinced that there is nothing higher than himself is almost entirely closed to God, by definition. Now, I'd also like to point out that the world in history knows nothing of a society or a tribe at any era who did not believe in spirit beings and in a higher authority, a god of one ilk or another. It wasn't until that ridiculously named era, the Enlightenment, right, of the 1700s AD, that man had finally reached the point of depravity as to declare himself the highest of all possible beings. That is, the Enlightenment, 300 years ago, less than that, was the birth of atheism. Second point, whereas more than 99% of the time in the Old Testament we find the word Lord in our Bibles, where in the original it was actually God's personal name, yud heh vav Yahweh, that was there, here we do find the word Adonai in the original. Adonai means Lord. All right, so... Abimelech was well aware he was talking to a god, but he, he didn't know which one. He did not call Yahweh by his name. He just called him generically Lord. All right. And he didn't really understand too much at all who he was talking to, except that he seemed to be aware that he was Abraham's protector. Now we also find that God invokes Abraham as an intercessor, an intermediary okay, between God and Abimelech because the idea was that Abraham would plead to God on Abimelech's behalf. And since Abraham was a righteous man, God would listen. I mean, this is not the first time Yahweh has positioned Abraham as a mediator between himself and mankind. Okay. Abraham pled for the hypothetical righteous people who lived in the city of Sodom. Remember that? Were there 10? If there are 40, we went all the way down, uh, rather 50, 40, all the way down to 10. Right? Um, in actuality, of course, Abraham and his mind was, was pleading for Lot. Now, we, we have in these actions a type and pattern of Moses being developed for, here, for us here, who really, of course, is a type and pattern for Christ. Now, as we get into verse 8, we're going to find the king Abimelech was a tad put off here. All right? Abraham's deceit had nearly cost him his life. All right? And Abraham whines that, well, in a certain sense, Sarah really is my sister. You know, of course, it is true she's also my wife. But I was afraid of you, and I figured this was the best solution. Sorry about that. You know, and we get this little tidbit of information that Sarah and Abraham had the same father, but different mothers. Okay? Now, it is fascinating 
that unlike the situation down in Egypt, Abimelech didn't kick Abraham out of his nation. Rather, he simply added further wealth to Abraham's clan and asked him to stay. Now, we also find at the end of this chapter that God restored Abimelech and his household. Now, in this context, it means that for some unspecified amount of time, none of Abimelech's wives or concubines had produced him any children. So this story we just read in a few verses probably played out over a several month period of time at the least. All right. Again, not an unusual characteristic for a Bible story that a couple of verses would cover a very long period of time. Well, let's move on now to chapter 21. So pull your Bibles out and we're going to read all of chapter 21. It's a little longer, but we're going to cover it all. Read it all at the moment. Chapter 21 of Genesis. Adonai remembered Sarah as he had said. And Adonai did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the very time God had said to him. Abraham called his son born to him whom Sarah bore to him, Yitzhak. Abraham circumcised his son Yitzhak when he was eight days old, as God had ordered him to do. Now, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Yitzhak, meaning laughter, was born to him. Sarah said, God has given me good reason to laugh. Now everyone who hears about it will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Nevertheless, I have borne him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and Abraham gave a great banquet on the day that Yitzhak was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom Hagar had borne to Abraham, making fun of Yitzhak. So Sarah said to Abraham, throw this slave girl out and her son. I'll not have this slave girl's son as your heir along with my son Yitzhak. Abraham became very distressed over this matter of his son. But God said to Abraham, don't be distressed because of the boy and your slave girl. Listen to everything Sarah tells you because it is your descendants through Yitzhak who will be counted. But I will also make a nation from the son of the slave girl, since he is descended from you. Now, Abraham got up early in the morning. He took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder and the child. Then he sent her away. After leaving, she wandered in the desert around Beersheba, when the water in the skin was gone, she left the child under a bush and went, down, went and sat down looking the other way about a bow shot distance from him because she said, I can't bear to watch my child die. So she sat there looking the other way, crying out and weeping. God heard the boy's voice and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what's wrong with you, Hagar? Don't be afraid. Because God has heard the voice of the boy in his present situation. Get up, lift the boy up, and hold him tightly in your hand because I'm going to make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. So she went, filled the skin with water, and gave the boy water to drink. God was with the boy and he grew. He lived in the desert and became an archer. 
He lived in the Paran Desert, and his mother chose a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Avimelech and Pichol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham. They said, God is with you in everything you do. Therefore, swear to me here by God that you will never deal falsely with me or my son or my grandson. But according to the kindness with which I have treated you, you will treat me and the land in which you have lived as a foreigner. Abraham said, I swear it. Now, Abraham had complained to Abimelech about a well which Abimelech's servants had seized. Abimelech answered, I don't know who has done this. You didn't tell me, and I heard about it only today. Abraham took sheep and cattle and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. Abraham put seven female lambs from the flock by themselves. Abimelech asked Abraham, What's the meaning of these seven female lambs you put by themselves? And he answered, You are to accept these seven female lambs from me as witness that I dug this well. This is why that place was called Be'er Sheba, well of seven, well of an oath, because they both swore an oath there. When they made the covenant of Be'er Sheba, Avimelech departed with Behold, the commander of his army, and returned to the land of the Pilishtim, Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarack tree in Be'er Sheba, and there he called on the name of Adonai, the everlasting God. Abraham lived for a long time as a foreigner in the land of the Philistines. Well, know that a quarter of a century has passed since the first few verses of Genesis chapter 12 when Yahweh made all those promises to Abraham, you know, among which would be the promise that from his descendants all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Now naturally, the implication was the birth of children to Abraham. But until now, not one child had been born to Abraham's wife, Sarah. Yes, he had a qualified heir, a son, Ishmael, who had been born to Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar. But the Lord never takes halfway measures. This list of prophetic promises of God to Abraham compels me to relate to you something that the Lord has shown me over the years. Now, as concerns the understanding of God's people about his prophecies, the mistakes men make are not that they cannot find a way to relate the eventual fulfillment of a prophecy to its original pronouncement. The mistake is that we do not take God's prophecies literally enough. Okay. All of Yahweh's promises to Abraham were literal and they were fulfilled literally. Okay. Abraham would have a son, not kind of a son, not a good enough heir, but a true son and a true heir, regardless of what the earthly human circumstances might have seemed to dictate. And because of the times in which we live, let, let me say it all again. 
all of God's prophecies must be taken in the most literal way. You know, things may be looking dark for Israel right now. But we can be absolutely assured that though the whole world continues to line up against them, even if Israel finally tells the U.S. government they can't stand much more of our help, okay, the Jewish people are not going to be expelled from the land. Okay, because the prophecies tell us that once they've returned after Egypt, after Assyria, after Babylon, and after the Romans have taken their land from them, once they return again, which they have, they'll not be leaving. Okay, it doesn't matter how reckless or how ungrateful they are to the one who brought them home. This is a promise from Yahweh. We can count on it quite literally. And you know, we need to pray for Israel. We need to love Israel. Well, God kept his promise. And Sarah had a child. Yitzhak. Yitzhak, Isaac. That means he laughs. Okay. Well, the promise, 25 years in the making, was for a child of destiny, or better, a child of promise. Now we're going to examine shortly many of the parallels between that promised son, Isaac, and Yeshua. Now it's an axiom that God's timing is as important an element to any prophetic happening as the details of the happening itself. Okay? This is why we see the term God's set times or God's appointed times over and over again throughout the Torah, as we see that term repeated a number of times in chapter 21. In, in the few months, we will study God's appointed feasts, the biblical feasts, all of which have exact appointed times. Probably no one in here would argue that man has authority to affect or alter or abolish God's appointed times. Okay. Those appointed times were woven into the fabric of the universe when they were created. Right? And they're unchangeable. Yet it is so curious to me that one of the most basic tenets of church doctrine is that we do have the authority and the ability to change the very first appointed time God declared. The very first appointed time that affected even how our planet was produced and then given the abilities to sustain life. In Genesis 2.1 we read this, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts and by the seventh day God completed his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now this of course marks the seventh day Sabbath called in Hebrew the Shabbat, one of God's appointed times. And as we come across these several appointed or fixed times, we're going to find something that they all have in common 
They've been designated by Yahweh as sanctified, as holy. We're also soon going to begin to understand that it is God and God alone who declares that which is holy. Man has no authority to declare anything holy. All right, just because a date or an event or a place or an activity or a man seems to be unusually good or significant. Importance or relevance in our human eyes accounts for nothing as to what is holy and what is not. Okay? Because it's by Yahweh's declaration that we who trust his son have become holy to him. And so it is with anything and everything. Okay? We have only to discover from Holy Scriptures what his appointed times are, what those things that he's declared holy are, and then to observe them. That's our job. Okay, so at the set time, set by God, a precise moment in history, predetermined, Isaac Yitzhak is born to Sarah. And has been, as had been instructed, Abraham circumcised Isaac on the eighth day after his birth. Well, of course, the elderly couple was overjoyed. Abraham had just turned 100 years old. What a man. And Sarah, 90, when Isaac was produced. Yeah, what a woman. I mean, it was a miracle enough that Abraham could sire a son at that age or that Sarah, who had never, even as a young girl, had a womb that could produce life, could do so several decades after it was even humanly possible. But it was also a miracle that such an aged woman could even survive the process or would even want to. And as verses 6 and 7 show, they were astonished and dumbfounded. All right, as the hundreds and hundreds of people that now formed their clan would have been as well. Can you imagine what they thought with this 90-year-old woman walking around? You know, I mean, that would have been really interesting. Hmm. In verse 8, we see that when Isaac was weaned, probably somewhere around 3 or 4 years old, they had a great celebration, but trouble was brewing. Ishmael, still the much-loved son of Abraham, at around 15 or 16 years old, was apparently constantly ta uh, taunting the, the toddler, Isaac. Now, no doubt, Hagar was also giving Sarah a hard time as well, all right, as, as she felt the effect of having her diminished standing all right that had begun with the birth of Isaac so Sarah insists to Abraham that Hagar and Ishmael be banished from the clan now to say that Abraham was troubled about that would be quite an understatement I mean actually Sarah was simply carrying out God's will because God told Abraham to do it and not to be concerned for the boy's welfare that God would bless Ishmael and keep him safe. And besides, God says, Isaac is the one who will bear the covenant promise. Now, now here we have another and a long line of divisions that we've already encountered, of divisions and selections and separations 
of God. Ishmael and Isaac are separated. Now just to add a little context to the situation, there was a very good reason that God promised Abraham that Ishmael would be divinely blessed and divinely prospered. Law codes of this era and from this area have been discovered. And the exact case we have here in this story is, is discussed. Okay. Known as the law of Lepit Ishtar. Ishtar ought to sound familiar to you. Of Lepit Ishtar. Okay. Here's, here's how it works. Abraham had the right to accept or deny Ishmael as an heir to his estate because Ishmael was born to a slave woman. Okay? It is obvious by all accounts that Ishmael had been accepted by Abraham as the heir apparent of all his power and all his authority and all his wealth. That decision had been made by Abraham. Therefore, Ishmael was to have been given the firstborn's share of Abraham's very substantial wealth and by this Hagar, Ishmael's mother would also have benefited greatly as one could imagine. However, because Hagar was a slave, the slave's owner had at all times the right to grant freedom to that slave. Okay. The slave, Hagar, belonged legally to Sarah. When Sarah went to Abraham and told him to cast Hagar and that son of hers, Ishmael, out, it was Sarah's legal right to do so. Okay. However, the law states, that law of Lepit Ishtar states, that when a slave woman was released, it was the choice of the father of her children if those children were to be released along with her or not. See, Sarah could not legally order Ishmael out, but she could banish his mother, Hagar. Okay. Abraham's decision to order Hagar out wasn't even his to make. It was Sarah's. But his decision to follow, Sarah, to, to follow Sarah's desire for Ishmael to also leave was also most definitely up to Abraham. And when he agreed to do as Sarah asked, Ishmael's inheritance, boom, went right down the drain. All that wealth right down the drain. Ishmael and Hagar, in a moment, went from being wealthy heirs and having authority to being penniless and homeless. That was the situation. Now, this was not some vague legal situation that caught Abraham or any of the other players in this story by surprise. This entire scenario we read about here is based on their understanding of this law code. Okay. Therefore, to soothe Abraham, by his grace, God promised to supply the earthly portion 
of the blessing that had just been taken from Ishmael. Therefore, we find that just as Isaac now is going to go produce 12 grandsons, 12 princes called the 12 tribes of Israel, so Ishmael is going to be blessed with an equal amount all right, of tribal princesses and much wealth. Okay? Ishmael received by God's provision every bit as much, probably really in the end even more, all right, than Isaac. But the one thing Ishmael could not have was the blessing of God to be the promised son. He could not be the heir to the covenant promise. That was Isaac's and Isaac's alone. So Abraham obeys Yahweh. And he sends Hagar and Ishmael away. Now, how this must have hurt him. Abraham would have wept. I mean, he loved Ishmael. He had counted on Ishmael as his only begotten son for at least 13 years and probably 15 or 16. I mean, I don't know how he did it. Well, on the verge of dying of thirst, we're told in verse um, 17 that Malach Elohim calls out to Hagar. Literally, Malach Elohim means the messenger of God. Now, in this case, this was either an angelic messenger or it was God himself. Okay, notice now that this messenger did not appear before Hagar. He simply called out to Hagar from up in heaven. There is nothing that speaks of an appearance. Okay, notice that we're also told that God, in this case the Hebrew word is Elohim, heard the cry of the boy, not the cry of the mother. And then the messenger of God says that God has heard the boy and the next verse says, I will make a great nation of him. As with the three visitors who came to Abraham a couple of chapters ago, this encounter is very mysterious. Okay. Was this an angel or was this God? Okay. Angels usually make it pretty clear that they're doing the bidding of God. But here the messenger says, I will make Ishmael a great nation. I don't know the answer. Okay. But my opinion is that this was indeed a manifestation of God. In what form, it's very dis difficult to ascertain. Well, anyway, Hagar opens her eyes, swollen from the dust and the sand and the, just the tears of the situation. And she sees a water well that's miraculously appeared and mother and son are saved. And, and a promise now is made from God that Ishmael is going to father a great nation. Now. This is really a reminder of a previous commitment to Ishmael, undoubtedly for Hagar's sake. But notice there is no promise to Ishmael of land. Nothing is said of land. Just a nation. And just to be clear, in Bible terms, nations are not about land or territory. They're just about people groups. Okay. Now, after the dramatic rescue and promise, the narrative skips to Hagar and Ishmael becoming desert dwellers. They lived in the Paran Desert. 
Now that's an area roughly between the southern end of the Dead Sea um, to about halfway down into the Sinai Peninsula and eastward into the area that would someday be known as Midian or more generally as the Arabian Peninsula. Of course, this is the area that would soon become the root of the Arab nations. But the people who lived in Paran would be what we now call Bedouins. Okay. Now, I don't want to move into the next phase of chapter 21 until next week, uh, but I do want to draw some undeniable and obviously purposeful parallels between Isaac, the son of promise, and the Messiah, the ultimate son of promise. Here's just a few of them to consider, and there's going to be a lot. There was a very lengthy time between the promise of Isaac and its happening. Same thing for the Messiah. The births of Isaac and Yeshua were both miraculous. Isaac's because his mother's of his mother's age and her dead womb. Yeshua's because Mary was a virgin. Isaac's name was decided by God before he was born. Okay, so was Yeshua's. God sent a precise appointed time for Isaac's birth, just as he did for Jesus. And we're going to come to many others. Right? Now at this point, the chapter shifts back to Abraham's relationship with that Philistine king Abimelech. And in verse 20, we see Abraham is living in Abimelech's territory. And we're going to see now a little more determined and stronger Abraham from this point in Genesis forward. Okay, apparently, with the birth of Isaac, Abraham is now more confident in the ability of his God to protect him and keep his promises and he's more satisfied that if something befalls him and he should die he does now have that all-important heir in Isaac so that the family will move forward with the promises and blessings of God well there was a dispute going on that we read of between Abraham's clan and Abimelech's people over some water wells and the wise King Abimelech, aware that Abraham had a friend in the highest place, simply wanted to settle the issue before God again threatened him. So the negotiations end successfully with the traditional berit, the covenant-making ceremony, and Abimelech and his military commander who had come along with him went back home to Gerar. Then we're told that Abraham stayed in that area for a long time. Now, interestingly... The, uh, the area Abimelech returned to is here referred to as the land of the Philistines. Now, whether there were very many Philistines settled there yet and whether or not they were even called Philistines at that time is a matter of some argument, um, and which we may talk a little bit about next week. But next week we're going to get into uh, Genesis chapter 22.